Let's pray. Father, as we come today, we have so many goals for our time, so many goals for our life. We have goals for our kids. We have goals for our jobs. We have goals for what we do with our free time and what our retirement is going to look like. But we pray that you would this morning reorient everything about us to your goals for us and for our kids and for our jobs and for our free time. God, we pray that our families would worship you that that would be the goal of our lives. God, we pray that our jobs would be play places that you would be praised. God, we pray that in our free time, you would be praised. We pray in our harvest right now that you would be praised. We pray that in our retirement, you would be worshiped above all things. We pray, God, in our community here in Manchester, that you would be praised more in these days than you ever have before. We pray for Scott County and we pray for West Central Illinois, Lord, that you would be praised all across it in ways that have never happened before. We pray this Sunday morning, God, that in our state and in our country, that you would be praised and that you would be worshipped as you ought to be. We pray, Lord, for our world that has so many goals that go against you, so many desires that go against your worship, but we pray that you would be worshipped all over the world. We pray that that would grow. We pray, Lord, that we would, would this morning adopt your goals for the world, your goals for history. Pray that this would be a time for us to reevaluate what our days look like, what our heart longs for, and we pray that you would give us a deeper and deeper desire for you so that we don't just try to get through life, so we don't just try to navigate the ups and the downs that we go through, God, but that we would learn to glorify and worship you in the ups and in the downs. God, we pray for those in our church today who are facing financial difficulty. Maybe, maybe only they know what the bills look like and what the income looks like and what the days ahead look like they're going to hold. And so we pray that you would show yourself time and time again as a faithful provider for your people. We pray that you would hold to your promise to never let your people uh, go that you would never leave or forsake your people god we pray for those in our church that are that are battling despair this morning despair over their own life despair over their relationships despair that things can ever get better god we pray that you would give them a comfort that passes anything our words could give them anything that the world could offer them god we pray that you would that you would minister to those in our church that struggle so deeply with despair. God, we pray for, I pray for those this morning who struggle with shame and with guilt this morning that, that say, God could never love me because of whatever it is. And we pray that you would banish the thoughts of Satan, that you this morning would direct our thoughts, whether it's somebody who's here or somebody who belongs to our family but isn't here with us this morning, that you would direct our eyes to the cross and help us see that in the cross you pay for what we could never pay for and you forgive the unforgivable. We pray, Lord, that you would be above all things, again, that you would be honored and worshiped and praised in our worship today. In Jesus' name, amen. People fight. We know that. Kids fight. Children, families fight. Work fights. But it gets really sad when churches fight. When I, say, when I say churches fight, or I say something about the need for reconciliation in the church, what I've noticed is there are people usually think of a specific fight and think that's the one I'm referring to, as if I'm referring to one. I've noticed in a conversation, if I talk about the need to pray for and pursue reconciliation, 
I might be speaking of the category, but all of us have something come into our mind, maybe of somebody in your life that is like that has been hurt in the church, that has seen the fighting and said, if that's what it's going to be like, maybe you can think of somebody right now in your own mind that when they speak about the church or they speak about Christians, they speak about fights, about being hurt. And so here we are on a Sunday morning. Maybe some people here hear church fight and think of fights from the past. We're in the book of Philippians right now, which is a letter from Paul to one of his beloved churches. And he's writing to them about just kind of a family letter, like normal things that we all deal with. And he's, but one of the things he speaks about is everyday dangers. And so today we're going to be looking in Philippians where he's speaking to a church that is in danger, actually not even in danger. They have people in the church that are fighting. And maybe you're like me and you go, would your favorite church include people in the church that need to be reconciled? And so in some ways, it's good news for every church that one of Paul's favorites needs to be told, you are tempted right now with fighting. And so whether this is something that's in the history of Manchester Baptist Church, whether this is something that's in your history in the church, or if this is something, this is definitely going to be something that we will be tempted with as we live with each other in the church. The everyday danger of fighting of trying to get our own way. And so today, Philippians chapter 2 speaks specifically to that danger. He's been encouraging them for all the ways that God is at work in them. But go ahead and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. As Paul turns his attention to this issue of how, how can the church partner in the gospel instead of fighting around the gospel, fighting around preferences, so, but, and so this is definitely relevant for us as a church, but it's also relevant because you and I have family, and we know what family fights are like. We know what it's like, whether it's an immediate family or extended family, for some people to not speak for years or to just harbor hurt and bitterness we know what it's like to go to work in a job. So we know personally, that the, like how, do we, how do we navigate a world that seems like it's constantly fighting? How, how do we navigate hearts that are constantly fighting? So turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. Verses 1 through 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and, one, and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others over yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you, to the interest of the others. Let's pray. God, we, we long for peace, but we live with fighting. We know that we're tempted with fighting, and so we pray that you would use your word today to prepare us to be a people that belong to the gospel, especially in the area of conflict and unity. In Jesus' name, amen. 
If you notice, I want you to notice the very first word there. It starts with, therefore. Paul is saying, okay, because of what I've just said, here's what I want you to do. This is, this is what I want you to do. He says, therefore, which is referring to him saying, because you belong to the gospel, starting in verse 27, well, chapter 1, verse 27, is where he says, because you belong to the gospel, live in line with that. And so today, as we look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he is saying, because you belong to the gospel, here are three things that I want you to do. Specifically, he's speaking, we're going to see this later, but there are two women in the church in Philippi that are fighting. And he's going he's gonna to appeal to them directly to be reconciled. He's going to appeal to the church to not take sides. But here he is saying, because you belong to the gospel, that should affect what happens that leads to conflict in your hearts, conflict in the church. But instead, because you belong to the gospel, it should, it should create something different. So he says, three ways to live because you belong to the gospel. But I will, he's going to explain these to us. There in verse 27, he says... I'm sorry, verse 1. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. I think that's another way of saying Because you belong to Jesus. That united with Christ or in Christ, your translation may say, is one of the shorthand ways that, that Paul explains this is what it means to be a Christian. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, Again, if any common sharing in the Spirit, each of these things he's saying, because you're a Christian, because you belong to the gospel, this should affect the way that you live your lives. We'll find out their names in the, uh, later in the book. But here he says, because you belong. And then here's one, one of my favorite words in the Bible. If you have King James right here, instead of saying, if any tenderness and compassion, it says, if you have any bowels. And the reason is because at the time, they felt like the feelings were located in your stomach. And so if you're, you're sitting there going, what is this Joe saying? If any tenderness and compassion, this passage is like, if you feel, if you have, if you belong to the gospel and have any compassion, any feeling in the gut for Jesus Christ, here's how I want you to live. He's saying, I want you to live a different kind of life in the world because you belong to the gospel. The first way he shows us that you should live, uh, the first way to live because you belong to the gospel is he says, be like-minded and like-hearted. Look at verse 2. If you belong to the gospel, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and of one mind. He, Paul is like, okay, if you belong to the gospel, which I trust that you do, if, if, you're, the guy, if you're the ones that, that love me and have sent, your, sent Epaphroditus to help me when I'm in prison. If you have any affection for me who helped start that church, he says, complete my joy. What is going to make Paul's joy complete in their discipleship? He says, be like-minded. He describes in three, be like-minded, have the same love, and be of one spirit and of one mind. Each of these things he's trying to tell them. Like the, the call of the gospel says you're, that you're, the way that you think should be wrapped up in the same place. The, way you, the things that you love should be the same thing. He says your soul should be knit together around the same thing. This is what it means. If you belong to the gospel, then part of the pursuit of a believer is to love the same thing. To think about the same thing. But 
He's not calling us to, let me just change my mind to match yours, because then if you change your mind to match mine, then we're not really matching anymore. We're just trading places. What he's calling them to do is he says, like, let your minds and your loves be so centered on Christ that you guys become like-minded. Like, you guys should be gathering together. Another way of putting this, he's calling them to unity, to pursue unity, not just around, well, we have the same preferences, we have the same opinions, but we are thinking and loving the same thing. He's, I think Paul is telling us here that the church is not going to stumble into unity. If the church stumbles into, the unity, into unity, that it ends up just stumbling into preferences. If, if, if the church just kind of just happens to all like the same things, that's not the same thing as loving the same thing. And he, Paul is saying, what I want you to do is I want you to pursue unity in the gospel because of the gospel. I want you to pursue unity around Jesus because of what Jesus has done for you. This is the center of their life together. As he doesn't just say, well, we're doing something important, so let's put our preferences away. He says, we love the same thing. We think about the same thing. We want the, we want the same thing in life. And all of this flows out of what we see in verse 1 if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. He is calling the church to say, you know, how do you avoid conflict? How, or, and how do you pursue unity when you have conflict? It's not by trying to negotiate with each other. Well, I'll give a little and you give a little. Not just, well, I'm just going to give up and let you have your way. It's I love the gospel. And I want you to love the gospel. And in that way, we come to a different place. That is going to be the thing that makes a church that's like-minded and like-hearted is because both of us are not coming to a place of uh, uh, um, compromise. My kids have a book. That, my kids have a book that says when the family goes looking for a Christmas tree that uh, the little girl wanted one and the mom wanted a different one. And so they had to. dad said, we need to compromise, which means doing what mom wanted. And I think sometimes in, in life, we kind of go through life that way. We go, well, I guess I should compromise. I'll give you your way and let you do your thing. But that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying, actually, instead of trying to come to a place where both of us are like, like okay with what happens, what if we both pursue Christ and end up in a like-hearted, like-minded place? There is a, uh, a story, I've heard it a number of times, but here in the United States, when ranchers need to enclose or like keep their cattle together, they end up using fences. It's just the nature of the way that uh, it works here in the United States. But one of the reasons for that is because there's abundant sources of water. And if you just had no fences, then the animals would go wandering off into all different places. But in Australia, where there is in huge sections of the country that don't have a lot of water, they don't need to use fences to try and keep their animals together because it's the watering hole that draws the animals and keeps them in the same place because they can't go wandering off or else they'll die. And so they'll turn around and they'll all come back to the same watering hole. And so a, a rancher is using, instead of using fences to keep animals in, he's, keep trying, he's using water to keep the animals coming home. And I was thinking of that story because I think that's what Paul is calling the church to here. He's calling the church not to try and erect fences around ourselves so that we're somehow unified around, well, we like these same things. Is he's instead saying, no, let's unify around the watering hole that is Jesus so that we keep coming back to this place, not wandering off. So that our unity is not just we fit within the same boundaries, but it's that we love the same thing. We think about the same thing. We worship the same Jesus. 
That is going to be the thing that Paul says can unify a church. That can, that's going to be the thing that can draw a church that's divided and fighting with each other back to each other. That's going to be the thing that draws a family that's divided. That's going to be the thing that, that draws a community that's divided back together. When we are like-minded and like-hearted around Jesus and his gospel, not around our preferences. So, this, path, this, this first way, be like-minded and like-hearted because you belong to the gospel, asks us, are you pursuing unity around Jesus in your family? In your family, are you saying, God, we are, there is so much fighting in our home, but I don't want to just try and figure out how to negotiate our way out of a fighting, but Jesus, I want you and your gospel to be the thing that dominates my life, and I want you and your gospel to be the thing that dominates my spouse's life, my parents' life, my kids' life, my brothers and sisters' lives, so that our unity is not just because we've, we've cooperated, because we've negotiated our way to it, but because we both belong to the gospel so dearly that we find ourselves side by side partnering in the gospel. Or are you here today trying to find unity in other things? When you think about your life, you think about, well, I I want unity, but it's a unity around what I want, how I would do things, where I would go. This passage says, Because you belong to the gospel, be like-minded and like-hearted. The second way this passage calls us to live because we belong to the gospel is to be humble towards each other. Verse 3, look at verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Here he just says... What does it mean to belong to the gospel? It means to not be driven by your own, this is what I want. It means, which that's just our, I would say that's our world. That's like me. That if I look in the mirror, I look and see somebody that's like, what do I want to do today? One of the great things about having kids is they help you see that you end up often parenting around the same thing in the same way that they're like living. They, like when you've got kids, you realize they start saying, well, I want this and I want this. And then you find yourself saying, well, what I want is peace in this home. And you find, ah, we're just all in the same spot, driven by this is what I want. And Paul says, no, the church, the Christian life is not a life of this is what I want. Why don't you guys give me what I want? He says, not selfish, not or given to vain conceit. Not, and maybe your translation says, uh, not driven by, well, I am better than everybody else. And I want to get ahead. In this family, in this job, in this workplace, in this church, I'm the one that's the leader. He says, no, not conceited or selfishly ambitious. He says, but then, but in humility, value others above yourself. There's kind of no squirming out of this. this. There's no squirming. He's just in humility. Will you consider other people more important than you are? Will you think about your kids as more important than you are? Will you think about your husband or your wife as more important than you are? Will you think about your brother and your sister as more important than you are? Will you think about your parents as more important than you are? Will you think about other people in our church as more important than you are? In humility, will you think about other people in our town as more important than you are? 
Paul says that's what it means to belong to the gospel. And so if you're going through life in a constant conflict and God says, because you belong to the gospel, can you consider the other person more important than you are? That transforms that, that disunity, that fighting, and that constant competing. It says, you know what? God, you have called me to think about them as more important than me. I think the, this means that the Christian life means that we make up our mind that other people are more important than we are. Whether we're the teacher or the coach, whether we're the, the employer or the employee, whether we're the one that's right or the one that's the one that's underneath, the one that in each of these situations, the Christian life, the gospel calls us to say, you are more important than I am. I, I fell in love with the book of Philippians, reading through it this year. And I've never really loved it, because I've told you this in weeks past, because it's kind of jumbled. It's like all over the place. And I'm, even though I kind of talk all over the place, I kind of like my thoughts to be sequential. And so, like, Philippians was just kind of like this loosey-goosey, like, rejoice and be glad. And, you know, and it's got, you know, Jesus in his incarnation. It's got all these different things. And I was just like, I don't know what to do with Philippians. But I was reading through it this year, and this line in particular stopped me dead. And I couldn't stop thinking about it in the days after that. Because the reading plan I've been doing gives, like, uh, up to about two days a week free. And so I'll often, like, think about one of the passages I've read that week. And I found myself every Friday, thinking about this line. Rather, in humility, valuing others above yourselves. And I could just look at my life and think of all of the people that I do not think are as important as I am. And it often starts in my own home. I found I, other, somebody else is talking, and I'm thinking of some other situation that I think is more important. Some, I'm thinking about what I want to say next. I'm thinking about what my plans are for the day. And this passage, he says, will you, like Christian life, looks like thinking whoever this is, they're more important than I am. Their agenda is more important than my agenda. And so this passage says that the Christian life, belonging to the gospel, looks like thinking that others are more important than we are. I had a pastor when I was in seminary. Well, he was a professor as well, but he, he commented that he could always tell what students thought was really important because he was like, they would never, if he asked them to preach on a Sunday morning, they never showed up late for the service. But if they were asked to serve in the children's ministry, they pretty regularly were late. And he was like, if you'll show up late for one thing but not the other, then you think that this is the more important job. And I just, like, that, uh, he, it's true. The, the things that we show up early for, the things that we work hard at, the things that we think are important, tell us what we think is most important. And this passage says, can the person who can do nothing for you, that that person is actually more important than you are because of the gospel. That person that you are in conflict with and that you can't, don't seem like you can reconcile with, that person that you think is dead wrong, they are more important than you are. That's what belonging to the gospel looks like. So, because you belong to the gospel, will you think of your children as more important than you are? Because you belong to the gospel, will you consider your brother or sister more important than you are? Because you belong to the gospel, 
Will you consider your boss or your coworker as more important than you are? Because you belong to the gospel, will you look at whoever it is that rubs you the wrong way, that doesn't seem like they're so important, will you think about them as more important than you are? The third way this passage calls us to live because of the gospel is to serve each other's interests. Verse 4, look at verse 4. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of the others. He, again, he's leaving no real wiggle room. He's already said in verses 27 through verse 1, like you belong to the gospel. I want you to belong to the gospel and live in a way that's, that lives in response to that. In verse 1, he has said, if you have had any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, he says, will you not look to your own interests, but look to other people's interests? Not the thing that makes your life easier and better, but makes their life easier and better. Not the thing that looks like your preferences in your home, in your workplace, in your church, but what makes their life in your home and in your workplace and your church better. Not looking to your own interests. We have no problem looking to our own interests. We know how to look out for ourselves. We know how to compete. We know how to try and get ahead. And he says, the Christian life and belonging to the gospel looks like looking to other people's interests. You see, but all of this is flowing from verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, Paul is telling us that service is downstream from the gospel. Starting with the gospel ends up resulting in service. The gospel ends up resulting, it looks like people who are concerned with, how can I be a blessing to you? What is the thing that you need? Sometimes that's actually a hard conversation. Sometimes that's an invitation for somebody to like pay attention to an area of, of sin. Sometimes the church is called to pursue people that are living in sin. And so sometimes it looks like that. But most of the time, it doesn't look like a sharp rebuke and a slap across the face. Actually, it never looks like that. Like sometimes it feels like it's difficult when there's a hard conversation. But most of the time, the gospel looks like somebody saying, what is in your best interest and how can I meet that? How can I meet that? Starting with the gospel, it changes the things that we care about and in the ways that we live. One of my great heroes is William Wilberforce, who in the uh, late 1700s and early 1800s was a uh, political leader in England. And his life was just kind of spent doing whatever until he became a Christian. And when he became a Christian, his entire life was turned upside down so that then the goals of his life changed. Before then, he was considered the greatest speaker of his time, possibly one of the two great uh, public speakers in all of history. But instead of being headed for prime minister of England and Great Britain, instead of being headed for, for like higher and higher political leadership, he decided to spend the rest of his life and the rest of his political um, ability to seek the welfare of the place that he lived. And so he worked to see people hear, uh, hear the gospel and be transformed by the gospel. And then he ended up being involved in prison reform and the end of the slave trade in the British Empire and in the founding of the SPCA uh, because he believed that all the earth is God's. And so we, because of the gospel, should look to the interests of the prisoners and of the slaves and of those that are sick and those that are hurting and those who need education. And so... William Wilberforce is somebody who embodied this idea 
that service flows out of the gospel, looking to other people's interest instead of furthering our own. So this passage calls to you and I and says, because you belong to the gospel, will you look to the interests of the other people in your home? Will you look to the interests of the other people in your family? Will you look to the interests of the other people in your workplace and in our church? Will you, because you belong to the gospel, because God has already loved you and given himself for you, will you give yourself for the interests of others? But the question that we have here is, where do we see Jesus in the middle of this passage? Where do we see Jesus in the middle of this passage? All of this is talking about because you belong to, God, because you belong to the gospel, because you have been united with Christ, we see that Jesus is the beginning, the middle, and the end of it. We see that Jesus fulfills this law for us. We belong to the gospel, not because of how hard we work, but because Jesus looked not only to his interest, but to ours. Jesus gives us the power to do this because he unites us to himself and gives us the spirit living inside us. And Jesus initiates this and carries it out in us. Philippians 1.6, Paul has already said, he who began a good and work in you will carry it along to the day of completion. And so don't go into this week thinking that you can or should fulfill this on your own. You have something better. Jesus is the one who makes you belong to the gospel so that you can live in unity, humility, and service in your home and in your workplace and in our church so that our church can be transformed from a place of who wins with their preferences but to a place that is like-minded around the gospel, considering each other better than ourselves and serving each other's interests. Maybe you're here today and you say, wait, how do I belong to the gospel? You keep saying, if you belong to the gospel, and maybe you're here and you say, I don't belong to the gospel. How, do, how can I belong to Jesus? The Bible tells us that even though God made the world and he made it good and he put Adam and Eve in it, Adam and Eve and you and I rebelled against God's authority, living our own way and making ourselves God's enemies. It is, it is in that story in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve and you and I looked to our interest, not to the interests of others, and said, God, we will not worship you in the way that you have called us to. We are going to live our own way. We are going to do our own thing. But instead of leaving us there, the Bible tells us that Jesus came and lived the life that we should live and died the death that we should die so that everybody who repents of their sin, turning away from sin and trusting in Jesus alone to save them can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness, of sin and selfishness, seeking our own way, and be transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. If that's you today, come and grab me at the end of the service. Grab whoever it is in your family that brought you and say, hey, I want to belong to Jesus. I want to belong to the gospel. So this passage calls to you and I and says, because you belong to the gospel, be like-minded, be humble, and serve one another. I want you to imagine with me for a moment what changes. I started the sermon mentioning church fights, and maybe somebody came to your mind. Maybe a church fight came to your mind. I want you to imagine what might be different if our church embodied this idea, we are like-minded around the gospel humbly considering each other more important than ourselves and serving each other's interests and not our own. That would, I think, I think that would change everything. 
I think it would end up resulting in things like apologies and reconciled relationships. Not where we just modified our preferences to each other, but we've actually become like-minded around the gospel. I want you to imagine what happens in a person who has, because they belong to the gospel, can consider other people more important than themselves and look to other people's interests. That sounds like a person who's free in a way that selfishness can never give freedom. I want you to imagine what a family looks like when everybody in the family is considering the other members more important than themselves. Instead of a family that's constantly negotiating and trying to trade power, instead it looks like a family that's loving and serving one another. I think it ends up ultimately in a church and in a community. It ends up creating a church that matches the gospel. A gospel where the king of the universe did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you knew we would deal with fighting. You knew that we would deal with um, selfishness. You knew that in our homes, in our workplaces, and in our church, we would try to get our own way. And yet you have given us in your word and you have given us through your spirit a better way, a different way, and the record and power to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.